broadcasting from just south of Los Angeles, California. This is the Veggie Power Podcast, exploring topics relating to working out, powerlifting, and everyday advice for lifting and living well. I'm your host, Dr. Ashley Contorno. All right, let's veg out. Well, hello there, everybody. I am back. Dr. Ash, thank you for tuning in. I just wanted to say first and foremost, thank all of you for the messages and the reposts that you've done of my podcasts thus far. Um, The Eating Disorder and Sport podcast got a lot of attention. I've had a lot of you, boys and girls, both reach out to me and say how much that podcast has helped you and that a couple of you actually started some treatment because of it. And I think that's fucking awesome because there shouldn't be a fucking stigma with bettering yourself. People go to the gym to enhance their physique and you should go get your brain checked by someone who can help you sort out your emotions and your feelings. So kudos to all of you. I can't thank you enough. Today's podcast is on veganism, vegetarianism, and sport, and just in general. I wanted to do today's podcast on, or this episode rather, on coaching styles, you know, linear progression versus conjugate, online coaching versus in-person coaching, all that shit, but it's going to wait for my next one because literally since the Game Changers documentary came out, I've gotten a DM probably every day, at least once a day, about, bro, hey, how do you become vegetarian? Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, how did you do it? Like, am I going to get enough protein? Like, will I die without, like, eating animals? Like, I don't understand. And I'm not making fun of you guys, well, slightly, but... Honestly, like it's for some reason to me, I think it's so weird that like it's this completely foreign concept to all of you guys that you can live and thrive without eating animal products. But I also understand that there's a barrier and that people do what they know and change is difficult. So I wanted to do this podcast to talk about my thoughts and feelings on the game changers to address some common myths and debunk some things. Uh, you know, highlight some real evidence about veganism, vegetarianism, and being an athlete because there are special considerations for that. But first, I wanted to talk about what's going on in my world and the news and this and that. I am slightly stressed out trying to get a lot of work done because this weekend, Stephen and I both are in a wedding. Our friends Steve and Avery are getting married. Yay! And our friend Rachel's coming in from Portland and staying with us. So I kind of get like a little freak when it comes to getting everything in order, but I'm excited. That's how I get when I get excited about something. I get nervous energy. I do want to talk about Hunter. Her name is Hunter, her first name. I don't know her last name. I want to say on Instagram, her handle is Hunter Fitness. She is a fucking badass bitch. So the Eight Man Classic was the weekend after the San Diego Fit Expo. Um... And some of those girls are just so incredibly strong. And Hunter is a 165. She squatted 518 pounds, you guys, in knee sleeves. Okay, your girl's got her shit going on. She benched, I want to say, 197. I'm sorry, put a two in front of that. 297, and she deadlifted 474. So how I motivate myself, if you guys know me, is I stalk 
everybody that's like in my weight class that's strong and you know like people I would compete against and I just watch their videos over and over again and motivate myself like I gotta get that strong so Hunter you've now set the bar up to 500 for me so I'ma get fucking squatting all right okay so I want to talk about the Game Changers documentary if you haven't watched it already it's a documentary on Netflix which was produced and directed by James Cameron which, side note, he also part owns or fully owns a large um, vegan protein company. So no influence there, right? So my opinion on the movie, I am team veggie, obviously. But my opinion on that documentary, and please don't get offended if you fucking loved it, but I think it was made for idiots. I say this because it was an absolutely one-sided glorified Nike commercial for becoming plant-based and me being who I am going through nine years of fucking college and ingrained in my mind what scientific evidence and literature is really all about it just kind of like pissed me off that it was just there's two sides to every pancake no matter how fucking flat you make it that's from Dr. Phil and I just felt like it was just like these weird, you know, it was like Instagram, like this, like quick, catch your attention, like, oh my God, look at this. Oh my God, look at the results immediately before and after. And then boom, so you should become plant-based and boom, so you should become plant-based and oh my God. But there wasn't the other side of the story. There wasn't, oh, here's what happens and why. It was just, you know, they, there was like some some eye-opening things like with the, you know, oh, you can get a bigger dick and whatever. But all in all, I felt like it was missing substantiated scientific fact and evidence-based knowledge as opposed to just a lot of anecdotal evidence and things like that. So let me educate you all on what's called the research pyramid. So this is something I had to familiarize myself with a lot going through grad school. There's different levels of evidence. And when you are analyzing and synthesizing or coming and drawing a conclusion from some type of evidence, you want to know how good that evidence was. Because the lowest level of evidence, for example, is an animal and laboratory study. It's not performed on humans. So to draw a conclusion about what would happen in a human setting from a laboratory or animal setting is a really fucking low level of evidence. Next, case reports or case studies. Those are like narrative reviews, expert opinions, editorials, like magazine articles. There's no design, there's no systematic entry of data or conclusion that can be drawn in a scientific matter. Moving on up, we have retrospective studies. So that's like a case control study. So basically you're looking for like a common risk factor or something where you take a group of people who have X disease and then you go back in time and you see like, oh, all of these people were exposed to asbestos in 1994 because they worked at this factory. Um, Yes, there's merit there. We're starting to go up the evidentiary hierarchy tree. We're getting into like some little bit of evidence, but that's like conclusionary, right? So you're drawing conclusions based on something that's already happened. You're not implementing or, you know, coming up with new data and conclusions. That's non-experimental. Another one is a cohort study. So this is prospective as opposed to retrospective. So this is where you take a group of people and you watch and observe 
conditions and things going on. So someone that has been exposed to a risk. So we'll say uh, a real world example in our generation right now would be the jewel or the vaping. Um, there's no fucking evidence. Well, they're starting to become evidence. It is, re- it is prospective evidence, um, you know, taking these people who are smoking these jewels and now seeing in real time what's going on with these people. If it was in an actual study, these people would be monitored and, you know, being checked in at intervals. But that is, it's kind of like retrospective, kind of prospective because it's happening in real time. And, you know, going back to seeing like people are dying. Oh, were they doing jewel? All that stuff. So if you don't already know about all that drama in the news about jewel and vaping and you vape, you should probably look it up because the shit is scary, you guys. Okay. So everything that I have explained thus far is non-experimental. Like I'm saying, there's no actual design or something that is implemented to see with a cause and effect relationship and a control. Now we're getting to like real evidence. So this is evidence that from this level and up is what I would take and conclude as something that maybe I would use as an evidentiary fact. A randomized control study. So this is prospective and this is like where you take a group of people and you have placebo A and actual, and that's group A. Then you have group B who has the actual drug that they're taking or whatever it may be. They're randomized. They are, so there's a lot of other factors that go into a randomized control study. You can't just like go on your street corner and find the first 10 people that you see because that's not really random because you're in one geographic location. So without getting too nerdy on you guys, um, that is something that you would consider as a researcher when, whenever you're reading an article, the methods of how they perform the study have to be explained in order for it to be approved by JCO, which is an authoritative body that governs and makes sure that testing is ethical and blah, blah, blah. So anyways, when you're reading the methods and you see, oh, uh, John, the researcher, went on the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and found the first 10 people, I'd be like, well, fuck that study because, you know, the social economic variation of who he's finding in one region of the country, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I dialed the first 10 names in the phone book, uh, blah, blah, blah. So if it's truly random, that has a lot to do with it. But also the experiment or size group is so important. If you're looking at a study, so for example, in the movie, The Game Changers, they had three people. Like, I don't believe that. You can roll a dice three times in a row and get a seven. Um, You know, you need a large number to represent and become something that can be generalized towards a population or, you know, a specific group of people. So how many people are in the study? And how was it randomized and the methods of gathering those people for an experiment is important. Now, we have a meta-analysis and or systematic review. We are second to the top tier of the best of the best evidence. A meta-analysis or systematic review is a collection of experimental, randomized, control studies. It can also be a collection of observational studies as well, um, where it's the best of the best data. Like say you're taking 50 people's experiments and it's all synthesized. So you're, you know, making a layer of something that's already good and making it better by taking 
the available data that's on the topic that you're looking for and generalizing that into one review. So you're compounding and that's even better. And last but not least is a clinical practice guideline. So that would be a standard of care or something that is already tested, already tried, already true, and you're implementing that into a population and seeing the outcome. So really where I'm looking at for research purposes and when I explain evidence or, you know, if I say the evidence is contradictory, I'm comparing where I'm finding that knowledge to randomized controls trials with a large uh, sampling population and meta-analysis or systematic reviews that have a lot of data behind the conclusions that they're drawing from. Okay, that felt like a forever tangent. I am a nerd, I know. So if you're still listening and I have not lost you yet, I just feel like that Game Changers movie didn't have all of those things. It was, you know, it was, we'll call it a retrospective and prospective observation that was biased. Oh, that's another thing, bias, biases in experimenting is fucking crazy. So it's like, you, it happens a lot in the food industry, to be quite honest. Um, it used to happen in the tobacco industry. So it's like the tobacco industry would fund all these fucking studies to say that cigarettes aren't bad. Um, you know, you read the study and it's like, oh, blah, 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 based on this and that and that. And then you see that it's like uh, brought to you by Philip Morris. So it's just like, there's so many factors that go into really discerning true evidence. So this movie was, so the person who wrote and directed it has some ties to plant-based products or company. And the gentleman that was seeking out the information is only looking for, you know, the positives. With that being said, the movie was fucking cool. It was great. It was a Nike commercial for plant-based and people are interested and people want to know about it more. I'm like shouting because I'm excited. I was doing some research and I like had to stop because I was so excited to start recording this podcast. I'm like, I'll kind of research as I go and pause. Um, But so that was my personal point of view, being someone who is an evidence-based practitioner who has dealt with a lot of evidence and research myself. I felt like that was totally lacking in the movie, but being a vegetarian, being someone who is plant-based for health reasons and has enjoyed it successfully for seven, almost eight, it'll be eight years in a month. Um, I do think it's cool that the movie has sparked such an interest in the population because the current United States data and statistics show that only 2% of the population is vegan and 5% is vegetarian. So that's pretty low. It is definitely higher around the globe due to different cultural, social cultural beliefs like um, of people who practice vegetarianism, but that's just the United States and our you know, Western culture. So I was having trouble figuring out like exactly where I want to start talking to you guys about all of this. But the biggest question I get, you know, people see me and I'm definitely a buff ass chick and I break the stereotype of, you know, being a vegetarian with my muscles. Um, There is something called vegaphobia. Um, It was a term that was dubbed in the United Kingdom first about the stereotypical um, standard and thought processes about people who are vegan. It is uh, where people, you know, think that they are 
hippies and animal, you know, like they are like the right wing fucking extremists of veganism. And there are those people out there. Um, the thought when people think about vegan veganism or vegan culture is that like it's this like skinny emaciated fucking hippie who's like yeah you want some plants man but uh vegan and vegetarianism can look different across the the spectrum there are those people there are also people like me and there's olympic athletes and you know people that were highlighted in the um the movie about you know being strong and being plant-based so what I wanted to do first is just kind of go over all of the different types of veganism and vegetarianism to get some classifications out of the way. So a vegetarian is someone who abstains from meat, flesh, foodstuffs, quote unquote. Um, a vegan is someone who abstains from all animal products, period, and their byproducts and other things that have like any products that have been tested on animals, clothing, that anything that involves an animal in any way except for like the petting zoo, vegan is a no. So they have a, an additional layer of complexity with, um, you know, skincare products, hair care products, clothes, uh, shoes, things like that, that you don't even realize, oh my God, this isn't, you know, this has animal stuff in it. So that is on the more extreme end. It's a, it's a diet and lifestyle of exclusion. Um, whereas vegetarianism is slightly more flexible, not that one is better than the other. And I will say this, being a vegan or vegetarian is excellent and amazing, and it's not for everyone, and that's okay. So don't feel like you have to do this because you saw that, because there also is a semi-vegetarian category, you guys. It's where people are transitional between vegetarian and meat-based diet, and they limit the amount of meat, but they still do meat. There is lacto-ovo-vegetarian, which is ding, 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 me. So excludes all um, flesh of meats, but it permits other animal products like eggs, milk, and honey. I personally don't eat uh, milk products that much, but there are times that I do. So I am lacto-ovo. I tried being vegan for eight days, and honestly, it wasn't for me. So I said there's lacto-ovo-vegetarian, which does milk, dairy products, and eggs, and then there's lacto-vegetarian and ovo-vegetarian, so lacto only does dairy products, excluding other animal products, and then ovo excludes all animal products except for eggs. Vegan is, like I said, an exclusion of every single animal product, byproduct, and all of that. A vitarian permits the consumption of organic, raw, and fresh foods only, and excludes coffee and tea. I didn't know that that existed. A liquidarian is the consumption of all vegetarian food in the form of juices. A fruitarian excludes flesh food stuffs, animal products, and vegetables. A sproutarian excluding foods in the form of sprouted plants, seedlings, and grains, vegetables, and fruits. Those last three are a little four are a little questionable there, but I just wanted to give you guys a lowdown on the different classifications of what vegetarians and vegans actually are. The tried and true number one question that every single vegetarian or vegan gets is how do you get enough protein? Well, let me go over something. So I kind of want to talk about like a global view and then a more small microcosm view. So the global view is 
in the Western culture, like a normal diet, there is what's called an RDA, recommended daily allowance in the United States of what the guidelines for macronutrients and protein are. Macronutrients are carbohydrates, fats, and protein. So in the U.S., the for like the regular average Joe, just for protein, meat eaters consume about 14 to 18% of their daily calories from protein and vegans about 10 to 12%. So that is not an athlete. That is just a regular person. There's not a huge difference there. If I was like, Hey, you're only going to eat 18% protein, bro. You would probably like shoot my head off if you're an athlete. So Athletes are the microcosm. We look at food and nutrition very differently than a standard, typical Western American diet, which relies more heavily on carbohydrates and fats, with protein being the tertiary component with whatever is left over. So how much protein should you be eating? Well, it depends on what you're doing in your microcosm of athletics. I'm, I'm saying this from an athlete's perspective because... That's what I am and who I am, and I wouldn't really even recommend for a normal person um, that low amount of protein because protein, what it does, let's let's break that down for y'all. What the role of protein is, it's a structural component of the body, organs, tissues, and it produces hormones and enzymes. It is definitely necessary for muscle growth and repair. What you do when you lift weights is you stimulate protein synthesis, muscle synthesis. Protein is made up of amino acids, the building blocks of protein. They are classified as essential or indispensable, meaning you can get some that are synthesized from your body and some that you need to get from food because you cannot make them yourselves. What people consider a quote-unquote complete protein or a high-quality protein is the amount and concentration of amino acids or its amino acid profile. Now, I will say this. Meat has a higher concentration of amino acids and bioavailability and digestibility of those. There's like rating scores for different types of foods. Um of when you eat it, how bioavailable the amino acids become and how easily digestible it is. And meat sources and dairy sources are ranked higher slightly on that scale than where you can get the plant-based equivalents to. So there definitely are plant-based equivalents or plant-based proteins that are complete proteins. People say you cannot get them as a vegan. Well, I'm about to list 10. Quinoa, Buckwheat, soy products such as tofu, tempeh, natto, which I don't know if I'm saying that right because I don't know what that is, edamame, uh, corn, which is spelled with a Q, Q Q-U-O-R-N. It's a mycoprotein. It's actually my favorite source of meat replacement. Rice and beans, Ezekiel bread, Satan, which is a vital wheat gluten, hummus and pita, spirulina with grains and nuts. I can't read peanut butter sandwich on whole wheat bread. So all of those things that I just listed, if you were to eat them, you would be getting a high quality slash complete protein. There is so much conflicting evidence in the literature about 
how much protein people need in their diet as athletes. Uh, traditionally speaking, athletes eat a higher amount of protein due to the required protein synthesis that they need for their chosen sport. Endurance athletes eat more than a regular person, but strength athletes eat more than an endurance athlete because the majority of your energy comes from carbohydrates. So if you are doing an endurance-based sport, you would be better having higher carbohydrate intake than your protein versus someone who is like a bodybuilder or powerlifter that is trying to build the muscle mass and strength where you need more short bursts of energy and a lot of protein synthesis going on there. So you can go on the interwebs and kind of see what the guidelines are for protein, for how much you should eat. And I really think there's no consensus. You can go on, if it fits my macros, you can do like a hundred different, you know, macronutrient calculators and see what they, you know, is suggested for your body weight. I would say that super highly competitive bodybuilders are on a different end of the spectrum that I'm not really going to address in this podcast because um, those diets are so specific, like, Steven and I were kind of arguing about it. He's like, well, how would you do an absolute zero carbohydrate diet if you're a vegan? And honestly, you can't. So if you are a vegan and you're bodybuilding, that would be where you would get with one of the experts that does vegan bodybuilding meal planning, because honestly, that's not my expertise. I don't do bodybuilding anymore because I don't think it's healthy mentally or physically. And it's just so, it's so extreme. So a lot of people also like to do that when they're talking about veganism and vegetarianism. It's like on this extreme end of the spectrum. Um, but it's really not. Like a lot of people don't realize who don't track their macros, like exactly how much protein they're eating. If you aren't on a consistent diet and you just tracked what you ate for a day, a week, whatever, and you saw your protein, you might be surprised at how low it actually is, even being a meat eater. So in general, I searched the webs and I kind of took like an average of what the general population or protein recommended guidelines are for athletes. So for an endurance athlete, it is, I put it in grams because nobody and pounds, because nobody uses kilograms here in the U.S. It's about, for an endurance athlete, about 0.65 grams per pound of body weight. So if you weighed 200 pounds, it would be the equivalent of 130 grams of protein. For a strength athlete, it is 0.75 grams per pound of body weight, which is about 150 grams of protein per day. Now, vegan, I'm going to like, I kind of am doing vegan and vegetarianism like inexplicably and the plant-based people are probably like wanting to shoot my head off because there's a big difference, but I kind of blur the lines there. But for a vegan diet, it is around 0.5. So if you weigh 200, that would be 100 grams of protein per pound of body weight. Now, a regular person eats only about 0.35 grams per pound. So for that, again, that 200-pound person, they're only eating about 70 grams of protein per day, which for an athlete, that's like, oh, my God, that's I would die, right? That's totally not enough. So... A lot of people wonder, because the nature of a plant-based, vegan, or vegetarian diet, there is a lot more fruits and vegetables. There's a lot more carbohydrates than if you were just eating meat. 
So how do you do it and, you know, get your macros, get your ratios in? Well, the great thing that comes along with eating plants is this little thing called fiber. So you're eating these carbohydrates. I don't know if you've ever done like a ketogenic diet or like when Atkins was like a thing, you kind of subtract the grams of fiber from your total carbohydrates at the end of the day to get you your net carbs. And that's kind of what goes on when you're eating a vegan or vegetarian diet. Fiber is something that your body does not necessarily, they're soluble and insoluble, but your body uses excess water, it uses excess energy, it uses a lot more to process that, so your body just doesn't take it as regular carbohydrates and then stores it as glycogen and fat. I hope that makes sense. So it's like you get an added bonus of having the protein with the fiber. So your body, your colon is happy, you're processing more. Let me tell you, my total is happy. I don't know how many of you guys like just got done eating like fried wings or chicken wings and like had a bad day the next day. Well, that shit doesn't happen to me anymore now that I don't eat animal products. Uh, I want to tell you guys personally why I am a vegetarian. I don't know if I got into this on my first episode or not, but when both of my parents, before they were 50, they both got diagnosed with different forms of cancer. I did say this. Well, if you didn't hear it, I'm telling you again. Um, They both are alive and well, but I don't have a problem with eating meat per se. Well, at this point, I kind of do because... It's been eight years, and now I wouldn't want to eat meat, but when I first started, it was purely for health reasons because I wanted to affect my epigenetics, meaning the things that I can control outside of my DNA. I don't like the way that meat is produced and manufactured in the United States with all of the additional hormones and things that are put into our meat. I didn't want to ingest those, and I was in college, and I was poor, and I couldn't afford to be 100% organic, farm, hand-raised, all that stuff. So I just became a vegetarian. And nowadays, there's so many more options available that it has been the easiest. It's not hard at all. The only thing I would say is hard is like, I can't really just walk out of the house on a Saturday morning and not have any kind of food plan. Um, It makes it a little bit difficult. But I think that's more because also I'm an athlete. I want to fuel my body in a certain way. Nowadays, I can go to a bunch of festered restaurants and get vegan or vegetarian options, but I choose not to because I want to eat more mindful and healthy. One of the reasons when I was originally becoming a vegetarian was the evidence. So this was, like I said, almost eight years ago, 2012-ish, was there was a lot of evidence in the literature and like on TV, you know, being exploited about eating a high soy diet and overproduction of estrogen. My mom has an estrogen driven breast cancer. So I was super nervous, like, oh no. So I made sure that the meat replacements that I was eating were not soy based because the majority of them are. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the research has now debunked that myth Um, I was looking up some meta-analyses of both women and men because a lot of men think that it's going to, or there's some bro science out there that eating a lot of soy will lower your testosterone levels. So remember, the meta-analysis is a conclusion of a lot of other analyses. And let me tell you this, guys. 
something else that a that literature does when you're reading it tells you the limitations of the study like oh the study would have been better if we would have done this and this or oh this study was limited because there was only this in the sample size so it even gives you its faults its flaws but according to a large body and of quality studies and meta-analysis, it determines that there is no effect on free testosterone and male sex hormones and reproduction from eating soy. And then on the female side, there's a lot of long-term studies right now on gene expression. Um, it's called soy isoflavonoids and what it does to different kinds of genes and expressions. They actually give it to people who are postmenopausal. Doesn't that sound weird, right? Well, the rationale for this is because soybeans and soy products have those enriched isoflavonoids. And what they actually do is they lower hormone-related conditions such as breast cancer and hot flashes and things like that. So when you're going through menopause, giving estrogen replace, which if y'all don't know, boys, um, menopause is when your estrogen decreases, you run out of those little eggies because you're only born with so many, and your reproductive system is like, all right, we're taking a break, we outie. And it is of concern and dangerous to do a lot of estrogen replacement and hormone therapies because that can actually increase your risk for uterine cancer. So what they actually do is prescribe soy products in various different compounds and components because the evidence shows that those soy products have a lower prevalence of the hormone-related conditions. Uh, a lot of this was done from comparative studies, intervention studies, studies and also those prospective studies that I was talking about, but it actually protects against cancer. So like one of my whole reasons for avoiding soy back in the day is now like, hey, soy be lowering them hot flashes, girl. You better go eat some out of my mate, girl. <laughs> a lot of it was compared to um, the Asian cultures, Japanese cultures that eat a lot of soy products. So I want to talk about protein consumption and there is contradictory evidence in the liver literature about liver and kidney damage with increased protein consumption. It's, it's pretty nominal, honestly, you guys. There's really not an upper limit for protein consumption and not like saying you can't go wrong with eating too much protein, but there's really not a science-based evidence, health proven benefit for eating excessive amounts of protein. The vegan and vegetarian diet is associated with a lower amount of protein than a meat eater's diet, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Okay. I do want to talk about some of the things that are beneficial from a vegetarian diet. So vegan and vegetarian diet is associated with a decreased risk in heart disease, lower mortality rate, significant reduce in overall cancer. That is more for vegans than vegetarians. Um, heart disease, if I didn't already say that, and lower cholesterol levels. So this is kind of contradictory as well because it's like the vitamin theory. So people who take vitamins are generally found healthier, but are they healthier because of the vitamins or because they care, they give a fuck about their body, their physique, and what they're ingesting to be taking vitamins in the first place. So people who are commonly associated with vegan and vegetarianism do care 
in general, I'm generalizing here, care more about their bodies than maybe some other people do. So what came first, the chicken or the egg there? But in general, across the literature, a vegetarian or plant-based diet significantly shows a reduced rate for all of those things. A lot of it is because the decrease in saturated fat intake and also you end up eating lower carbohydrate or not carbohydrates. I was just talking about how you're eating more carbohydrates, lower calorie total caloric intake. Uh, Vegans and vegetarians are also known to have a lower BMI than their meat eating counterparts. Okay. So I explained some of the positives. So I need to get into some of the negative or risks that are associated with a vegan diet because Aside from how you gonna get enough protein, bro, is like, oh my god, how do you get B12, bro? So, B12 is, uh, if you are 100% plant based, is not found in pl- plant based sources. So, you need to educate yourself. Here's some of the areas that do require extra attention if you are 100% plant based your protein, calcium, iron, zinc vitamin A, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin B12, vitamin D, and iodine. So many of those items listed are associated with a typical Western diet, but vegans, they don't need to worry because everything except for B12 and vitamin D is easily found in vegan foods. And I will tell you how to get them on a vegan diet. Okay, so B12, there's a lot of like misleading information out there about B12, and some people say that vegans don't need to worry about it, some people say that they do, but honestly, there is a clear agreement and consensus that you need to have B12. So honestly, my plant-based friends, the best way to get it is to supplement, Um, Taking a daily supplement that provides 25 to 100 micrograms of B12 is a great way. You can take a 1,000 microgram B12 only twice a week, or you can eat at least two servings per day that are fortified with two to three micrograms of B12. So before the haters are like, oh, you have to eat food that's like enriched. A lot of food that we all eat is enriched, like cereals and bread and a lot of different things are enriched and processed and have added, you know, vitamins and minerals in them. Same thing with vitamin D, y'all. Take a supplement. The uh, the recommended dose is 600 IUs per day. So a lot of the... um, Some of an easy resource to find some vegan information is actually vegan.com. They have some medical and some scholarly articles that pertain to some of the issues or challenges or great things for recipes that vegans want to know about. Okay, I feel like I've scoured the literature enough and I kind of want to get into some personal opinions here because... Evidence is boring, right? Everybody likes hard-hitting facts. That's how you get famous on the internet. You say some fucking crazy things. Well, I think you can have a shitty diet either way. Just because you're plant-based does not mean you're healthy. Just because you eat meat does not mean you're healthy. Um, I follow a lot of these awesome vegan pages. Uh, One is called Veg Out LA, and it's basically where I go to, like, all my crazy restaurants when I want to cheat, um... 
But like if I ate that all day, every day, I would be fat as fuck. So it's like the biggest thing here, you guys, is making choices that require planning and preparation for you to be able to get what you need. Whether you eat meat or not, reading the label, figuring out the macronutrients that fit your needs, making sure you're getting enough protein, making sure you're getting enough carbohydrates for pre-workout, post-workout, things of that nature. Just because it's vegan doesn't mean that it's healthy. Uh, Sometimes overly processed foods like they're not that good for you. They remove a lot of the micronutrients that were available before it was processed. The Beyond Meat Burger and the Impossible Burger, there's like some controversy there. And people are like, well, it's just made of chemicals. Well, like, yeah, it is. So is it good for you to eat every single meal every single day? In my opinion, I would say no. I would say it's an every now and again thing. Just like people don't eat, you know, gorge themselves on burgers every single day for the most part. Maybe some of you do. But it's it's a balance, you guys. With a plant-based diet, as long as you're eating a variety of foods, you don't need a complete protein in every single bite that you put in your mouth. As a meat eater, you don't get a complete protein every single bite you put in your mouth. It's the combination of a variety of foods that contain the components to create an equation that will fuel your body and those needs. So basically, like, I'm telling you, you got to do some fucking work, Okay. You got to do some research. You got to figure out what you need for your body, where your nutrient ratios need to lie. You need to possibly consult with a dietitian or someone who writes vegan or vegetarian meal plans, or even if you eat meat, so that you are eating where you need to be. So now my favorite part of the podcast questions. So I post two question boxes. Um, I address a lot of the questions that I have gotten, um, like how do you get enough protein? And I hope I answered that completely because I gave some protein sources that are complete proteins, but also it's like go to Sprouts or go to Whole Foods and ask someone that works there if you need to and say, you know, what are some meat replacements? There's honestly, you guys, like a meat a non-meat or plant-based replacement for like everything, even Greek yogurt, which I tried and it kind of tastes like shit. So I wouldn't try it again, but you can eat your same macros. Like I said, unless you're on the extreme end and it's like zero fucking carbs. Um, keto doesn't really work with plant fully plant-based. It does with vegetarian. I did it for a year and a half, but you could eat your same macros that you're eating right now. Plant-based. If you just Figure it out what you're eating, go to the store and do some fucking work. That's the thing. People want, you know, that quick and easy, just like that's why the documentary was so exciting because it's these quick and easy instantaneous results. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of research. It's figuring that stuff out. So best source of non-soy protein. I, like I said, I love the corn products. It's spelled with a Q, Q-U-O-R-N. They're all non-soy. Some of them are vegan. Some of them aren't. Uh, I think they do have gluten if you're gluten intolerant. they On their website, you can type in your address or your zip code, and it will tell you all of the uh, places that sell it and what items or products they sell at that store. It is my favorite. I love the beef strips and the chicken strips. I also... Uh, tried this product. It's called Longeve, L-O-N-G-E-V-E, with the little asterisk thing there, whatever that thing is, apostrophe, whatever. I ain't, I ain't an English major, but I am a doctor. 
So they're uh, plant-based pea protein crumbles. It is dehydrated pea crumbles. You rehydrate it with water and you put whatever sauce on it you want and you eat it. And it is awesome. The only downside to those is that they're fucking expensive. Um, I like begged them to give me a promo code. Uh, it's Ashley 10 and you get 10% off. Um, but they're, they're really good. They're very often at like trade shows and stuff like that. So you can go to their website and like check their events calendar and see if they're, you know, coming up near you because they have shit on sale a lot more when they do it in person. But it is, I really like using it as like a ground beef and putting like pasta sauce on it and stuff. And it's awesome. Best protein sources other than protein powder. So like I said, the corn, there's some other ones. So there's Boca, which isn't really my favorite. Morning Star Farms. I like a lot of their replacements. There's Beyond Meat. There's Impossible, I think is coming into stores now. There's Light Life. There's Tofurky. Literally, you can just go to your refrigerated section or your freezer section and they usually have a vegan, you know, whole aisle now. Field Roast. All of those are really good. And check the label. Read and see if it fits your lifestyle. What are your opinions on the documentary? Done. How to start. Is it better to take out animal products slowly at first or just to dive head in? This is a great question. So what I recommend to people who, because I actually do vegan and vegetarian meal planning or coaching rather. I don't like to just tell you, here's your macros, eat it vegan. I, you know, find things at your local store. Sometimes I give people a shopping list, sometimes just depending on their needs and then help them figure out what they need to eat. As far as removing protein, I would, or move, not protein, removing meat, I would say do it slowly. And this is why. You, if you are vegan or vegetarian and you're introducing meat back into your diet, you definitely want to do that slowly as well. Because your gut has certain bacteria to digest certain enzymes and products that it's used to digesting. So transitioning into a full plant-based diet right away might be a little bit hard on your gut and might create extra gas and just might be harder to process. The longer you eat those types of things or the more consistent foods you eat, the easier it is for your gut to digest those things. Also... Being vegan and vegetarian, like I said, does take planning. So it could be overwhelming to say, all right, that's it, you guys. Monday it starts fully plant-based, and then you're like at work, and it's lunchtime, and you're like, fuck, I have nothing to eat besides like these pretzels. So making sure, you know, go on Pinterest. You can like, there's... um websites where you can find like, you know, 14 day vegan meal plan and maybe do it for like one or two days a week and get a feel for it and see what kind of foods you want. Like I'm like a zero preparation kind of person. I eat frozen vegetables and frozen corn. I put it in a pot. I fucking walk away. I turn it on five. I might, you know, stir it once or twice, add some salt and then I'm done. That's my lunch. Sometimes I add rice. Sometimes I don't, depending on if I'm lifting or not. I don't like making fancy meals. I don't have time for it. And I like eating the same thing every day. But maybe you want to make recipes so you find that and then you see how involved or not involved it is for you to transition. But I think it's really more of a mind state and a preparation phase that you need to go through that could be completely overwhelming if you just decide you're going to do it all in one day. So maybe start with meatless Mondays and then it's Monday, Wednesdays and things of that nature. All right. This question is from Ray Dadmon. I don't know if you're joking or if you're serious. So let me know. Uh, if I go full plant-based, how am I supposed to beef it up for the hell of it? So maybe you're saying like get juicy and fat. It is not hard to eat a caloric surplus plant-based or not. It's 
again, just looking at the labels, seeing where your macronutrients fall. There's apps out there. So My Fitness Pal, RP Strength, and Macro Stacks. I've actually found Macro Stacks to be one of the better ones. You can type in your dietary preference as, you know, meat, vegetarian, or vegan, and it can, you can do meal builder where you push the little button and it separates your macros of exactly what you should be eating for that meal and it tells you what you should eat. You can put yourself in a bulk, in maintenance, or in a cut and you can build the meals and then that way you can like get an idea of what you think you want to eat and it does it, takes out all the guesswork and does it for you. Now... Maybe it'll build food you don't like, and you can erase it and try it again. So I think Macrostacks is really cool if you're interested in a uh, macronutrient counting app. I downloaded it to trial it just because a couple people have been asking me about it. No, I don't have a promo code, but you can probably Google it, and there's probably some out there. And uh, I'm actually really enjoying it. So I would recommend that, meat eater or not, it's a great way to track your macros and to help build and plan meal plans if that's something you're not good at it. The best ways to cook veggies for someone who sucks at eating them. I used to love roasted vegetables. I feel like there's nothing better than roasted vegetables. So even just taking like frozen vegetables, putting it all on a plate, put a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper, your favorite spices and roasting it. There's a lot of recipes out there on Pinterest. I feel like in 2019, Pinterest is kind of undervalued. It was a big thing back in the day. So also like cheat and like go on different restaurant websites like or restaurants that you like that have good sides that you've had in the past. Google it because there's always like copycat recipes of all that bullshit. Is it difficult to keep your calories where they need to be while meeting your protein numbers? For me personally, um, I have a problem eating too many calories at all times. So I am an easy gainer. There are what's called hard gainers out there. And there's like people who have, you know, no problem with the maintenance. But if I go to in a salary sur- calorie surplus for a short period of time, even my body wants to fucking gain. So for me, I don't have any problem. I eat around right now like 2,300 to 2,700 calories a day, and I ain't got no problem eating none of it. My breakfast, for example, I eat 11 ounces of egg whites. I eat one half or three quarter cup of oats, depending on if I'm lifting or not. I put one scoop of Sun Warrior vegan protein powder in that, and then I eat either a vegan protein bar or a regular protein bar. All of that combined is like seven or 800 calories. Just right there, you guys. Favorite plant-based websites, book, Insta accounts, education, and recipe ideas. So I would just like, actually, Veg Out Los Angeles is one of my favorite for finding like shit food places to go. I don't know if you're in LA or not, sorry. Um, Pinterest, like I said, invaluable. I don't really have any books. Um... So I kind of suck at that, like I said, because I don't really cook. So my friend Rachel Lackey, uh, you should reach out to her. Her Instagram is Rachel Lackey. (laughs) And you should ask her because she knows. And vegan.com, they have some resources. What is the best way to get enough protein without overloading on carbs? I kind of addressed that. Um, I feel like that is a choice in the quality of meat replacement protein that you are choosing. That Longeve protein that I was referring to, I want to say it's 140 calories per serving with 22 grams of protein and only like 
two grams of carbs, and it's like a massive amount of food. Um, the Beyond Meat Burger has a very similar macronutrient profile to a regular burger. Um, the corn stuff that I eat, I want to say for, I eat like, I just divide the bag into two and that's like 220 calories, 26 grams of protein and only like 10 carbohydrates. So it's, again, like I said, you're including extra fiber. So if at the end of the day, maybe you're eating 30 or 40 extra grams of carbohydrates, but you're eating 20 extra grams of fiber, well, there you go. So I would say the biggest thing there is reading the labels. I'm allergic to lagoons. How can I get enough protein without lentils and chickpeas? Oh no, lagoons are one of the best ways to get a uh, complex amino acid profile. Lagoons account for a huge variety of different beans, you guys, not just like lentils and stuff like that. So again, I would say different protein replacement sources. Um, quinoa combined with, you know, uh, Beyond Meat or Boca or one of those protein replacements would be a great substitute. I bet you could go on some forums on uh, some vegan websites and identify with some other people who have those similar issues because in my opinion, that's like on the extreme end that I don't think I could really give you the best advice on. Impossible beef. Is it bad for you? So I kind of touched on this a little bit. It is a highly processed food. I feel like it is you know, no worse than like eating three slices of pizza. I think it's something that can be nutritious because of the macronutrient content, but I wouldn't eat it every day as a main staple of my diet. Um, in assessing the nutrients in those burgers, um, I was reading an article that's like, they like surveyed three nutritionists. So we're low on the evidentiary scale here, but they basically said that it's not, what people are making it out to be like it's like a chemical bomb that's just going to kill you it does have some nutritious you know value to it how do you feel on workout days I find myself weak even if I have a good food day so for me that's why I eat consistently every day so well right now I'm kind of eating all over the place if my husband listens to this he's probably going to laugh and be like no you don't but in general I typically eat a very similar variety of foods on rest days and or training days, and I just increase or decrease my carbohydrates as needed. So that way, if something is off with my training, I know it's not coming from my food. So I think maybe you need to assess how many carbohydrates you're eating pre and post workout, or what your total macronutrient count is, because maybe you think you're getting XYZ and you're really not. I fuel myself by making sure that I'm eating 50 carbs pre-workout and about 40 to 50 post-workout. If I've had a gnarly ass leg day or I'm training legs, I actually, my max effort lower day, I bump that up to like 60 or 70. How do you base nutrients? New to plant-based and just started using macros. So I would recommend using your current macros. So say you eat 2000 calories and whatever your ratios are, Keep those same ratios and just read some labels, enter it into my fitness pal. My fitness pal is free. So enter some different foods into my fitness pal. Go to the grocery store and scan some things and see what it would take for you to get a normal day. So maybe you have to take like two hours doing some research to kind of figure it out because you feel lost. Or again, going online and finding like a two week, you know, vegan meal plan or something like that. Also, there's a lot of vegan meal prep company. There's one, I want to say it's called Simply Fresh. When I was in San Jose, I had it delivered. Uh, it, they deliver all across the country in these like 
vacuum sealed packs. It comes in like a self-contained cooler and you can do vegan, vegetarian, you can do regular diet. And it was fucking awesome. So it's like, that's something that Steven and I do a lot when we go to different places is we order meal prep, usually locally. But that time I had it shipped to our Airbnb and it was fucking awesome. So that way I was on, you know, a vacation. I didn't have to worry about the food that I was eating and it, all the macros were already on there. It was so cool. Kegels and peeing during deadlifts. Well, that question is not related to plant-based. Come on, guys. How much protein do you aim for? Have you ever tried a lower protein approach? So my macro stacks app recommends about 155 grams of protein. For me, right now, I weigh around 168, so it's a little bit less than one gram per pound of body weight. I eat anywhere from 150 to 180 grams of protein. Have I ever tried a lower approach? Yes, there's days that I definitely eat lower protein and I don't feel like I'm going to die. I don't feel any different. Uh, while I was cutting for Bossa Bosses, I was eating like 130 grams of protein, um, only like 1,000 calories a day, which sucked, and I didn't die. But yes, I've kind of tried all of the above, but I try to stay somewhere within 10 to 20 grams of my body weight. So again, that contradictory, how much protein do athletes need, which is very, very all over the place when you consult the literature. What is a good protein source aside from supplements, tofu, seitan, or meat replacements? A lot of vegetables actually have high protein content. For example, the top 10 vegetables with the highest protein content are lima beans, soybean sprouts, green peas, spinach, sweet corn, asparagus, artichokes, Brussels sprouts, mushrooms, and broccoli. So there you go. Also, just Googling different recipes would help you out there. Other vegan IG powerlifting accounts to follow. I'm so bad at like remembering these names, but I will DM you. I promise. Help with finding protein sources when a person is not only gluten-free, but soy-free. So again, this is like an extreme case. I would, you know, if you hired me to help meal plan for you, I would be able to do that. Consulting a nutritionist or possibly some uh, vegan blogging sites where other people have recommendations and ideas. Because I think those super extreme cases aren't applicable to all. Do you believe in a plant-based diet or veganism is for everyone? I did say this earlier. I don't feel like it's for everyone, but I think everyone could benefit from it if they wanted to. Do most of your carbs come from vegetable sources and how does that fiber affect you? So since my gut has 100% adjusted to a mostly plant-based diet, I don't have a problem in digesting all of that. I would say if a meat eater went to fully plant-based tomorrow, they would probably have an upset stomach. Uh, tofu does make me fart a little bit more, but I will be honest, when I eat whey protein, I notice that I fart so fucking much and it pisses me off. That shit is true about the protein farts. Um, so I actually really try not to eat whey because of the nasty flatulence, y'all. Um, so recommendations for a non- uh, plant-based person transitioning or trying to do like a full day plant-based, you absolutely need to increase your water intake because with the increase in fiber, your body needs more water to process that fiber and have the gut digestion and the motility in there go. So it would affect you starting out, but that's why, again, I think transitioning slow is a good idea. The best way for someone lifting to get their full day of protein without meatless products. So Avoidance of all meatless products, like is soy 
or is like tofu a meatless product in your opinion? Because that's really like an unprocessed, just like edamame bean. It's not like the uh, morning star or the corn, like I eat and stuff like that. So that would be, you know, looking up a full vegan meal plan and seeing if the macros fit. Do the macros fit your own needs, bro? Best places to find to find protein and plant-based foods without using supplements, if possible. I definitely answered this question a million times in this podcast. How do you hit your calorie goals? I tend to get fuller quick, less calories consumed. Yeah, if you're not used to eating a lot of vegetables and you transition into a plant-based diet, the vegetables can make you feel full faster. But honestly, what I've noticed is that you get hungrier a little bit quicker. So you can eat more small meals throughout the day. That's what I would recommend. And, you know, put some things like oil or nuts or more calorie dense, nutrient based items in there to help fill those calories. If you're having a hard time eating, is your husband vegan? I vegan also, so I'm not vegan and he is not uh, plant-based at all or vegetarian. He does love going to vegetarian or vegan restaurants with me. It's something that we enjoy. Uh, he said maybe when he's done bodybuilding, he will try, you know, doing my plant-based-ish lifestyle for a while. But for right now, no. Make all the haters go vegan, please. <laughs> um, how do you figure out which proteins and carbs to combine together? So again, like I said, I in the beginning of this, I listed 10 uh, high quality or complete proteins. But overall, my true opinion on that is if you're eating a variety of foods that have amino acids in them, you will be able to get a full amino acid prote- profile, which is what you really want in some quality protein. So I just like rice with my protein and my vegetables. I'm super simple. So honestly, like even though I do meal planning and I, I make it as adventurous as the client desires, I am a super fucking simple eater. Must have veggie foods. Ooh, I don't know, like sweets and treats or like the real deal because there's a website called Milk Guys, M-Y-L-K-G-U-Y-S. It's like a full vegan shopping center that has like everything you could ever imagine. It's really good to just like kind of go on there and browse and see the different vegan options that are available because like I said, you can get everything. That's where I got the vegan Greek yogurt that I wasn't a super fan of. I don't know if there's any must-haves, um, but, well, I did talk about the supplementation with B12 and D3. I personally take, let me list, iron, B12, D3. So the reason why um, D3 is or B12 is so important is it can lead to anemia. So that's where the whole anemic, low iron, all that stuff cycles uh, stems from. Anywho, I take B12, D3, I take a probiotic, it, like a, it's a bean enzyme that helps with digestion, I take potassium, sodium, magnesium, and I think that's it. I've been vegan for 14 years. When can I expect to die from protein deficiency? Well, you should have already died, bro. I mean, 14 years, and you're buff as fuck, Matteo. Um, there's a lot of fucking buff vegan and vegetarian people out there. So that's all the questions. I skipped a lot because some of them were ridiculous and some of them I already answered. But overall, you guys, 
it isn't about just watching a video and walking away and say, that's it. I'm plant-based. It's like, would you go into Olympic overhead weightlifting and just say, that's it. Max effort, put it on the bar. Let's go. First time without learning how to perform the movement. Unless you're an idiot, probably not. So what you need to do, if this is something you're interested in trying out, transitioning into, or making it a part of like a semi plant-based, you know, flexitarian kind of lifestyle, do some research, figure out what you're eating now, whether you're on a meal plan or not, where are your macros, and then translating and equating that into a plant-based lifestyle. How do I get these similar macros? Think about the fiber, think about that and, you know, see how your body feels and performs. I feel fucking great as a vegetarian. I have not had like diarrhea except for that one time in Cuba or like those, you know, stomach pains and just like discomforts and things that go along with eating meat. I'm not saying eating meat is bad. Go ahead. You do you, boo. But from my perspective, it's healthier for the environment and for my body to not ingest those things. I'm not going to get into the whole social, social, cultural, you know, thing with reducing the emissions and all that. Cause that's like another like freedom fighter kind of argument. I'm just talking about the pros and cons here of meat versus not how to transition in and how you can best educate yourself. If this is something you want to do, I hope that if you're still listening, you have learned something or feel more empowered to educate yourself instead of just walking away and being, you know, a mindless mullet and just saying, oh, I see this. This looks great. I'm in, you know, do some research and figure it out. Love your body, love plants and veg the fuck out.